You're listening to the Cool People Podcast, hosted by Jim the Boss. My guest today is Ray Levier. Ray Levier is a professional drummer, and he also composes music for TV shows. Ray graduated with a B.A. in performance at the prestigious jazz program at William Patterson College. Some of the people that Ray has played with is guitarist Mike Stern, John Abercrombie, Wayne Krantz, vibraphonist John Locke. He's also played with Grammy-nominated producer Rich Tozzoli. Since 1998, he has toured with urban folk and jazz artist K.J. Dennert, recording nine records with her since then. I was excited to sit down and talk with Ray and find out how he got into doing music and playing drums. We have a mutual friend, Joanne Lewis-Paul, who I also have a podcast episode with later on in the season. Ray is very inspirational. He has a motivating spirit. Sitting there listening to his story, it made me think anytime I'm feeling down or not feeling like I could go on anymore, I just think of Ray. Ray has pushed boundaries and hasn't made any roadblocks for himself. He just pushes through and does everything that he can. You're going to find out that Ray's interest and talent extends beyond music, so sit back and enjoy. Is that French? Yeah, it's French-Canadian. Yeah. It means uh, the lever. That A VA is something that's used to, like, you know, like a seesaw to pull water out of the... Or, you know, clutch. It's like anything that helps engage something. Hmm. Is your parents from Canada or uh, my dad's side of the family is French Canadian although you know far removed from many generations uh, ago but uh, my mom's from the south oh cool she's from South Carolina and she, my dad was down there and he was in the Navy and that's how they met he was down there and uh, my mom was a blues singer and playing at this club and my dad came in and was like who's that <laughs> <laughs> And they just, they hit it off and fell in love, and she moved up north to what, New Jersey. Uh, what years was she uh, singing? Uh, I don't know. This is probably back in the sixties. Oh, so when blues was 60s, the blues, yeah. So when it was like still fresh, yeah. That's cool. Yeah. yeah. Where in uh, South Carolina was she? Charleston uh, was where they met, but my mom is from a town called Walterboro. Okay. Teeny yeah, my, little town. My mom lived in Charleston for a little bit. In oh, right on the late 60s or early 70s she was mm-hmm. married to a serviceman and he got shipped all over the country so she mm. had to go they went so what made you what was the inspiration for playing drums um the earliest memory of the drums was you know, my dad was doing rehearsals at the house. Uh, my dad plays piano, and uh, he's a, was he's retired now, but he was a uh, piano technician, refurber. You know, restored pianos. And so our garage was his shop, and he would get junkers and clunkers, and we'd just my brother and I would help him vacuum them out, and he'd gut them. Restring them, you know, rehammer them, fix the the action, whatever he needed to do. He'd restain the pianos, and then like you know, he had a little trailer, and he would like drive into people's houses and you know, move the piano up the steps into the house. And if you if your kid wanted to play piano back then, like there was no electronics yet, so it was like you needed a piano. So he couldn't roll them out fast enough you know and he made really good money flipping pianos and he was really good at it so uh uh he he was also playing in bands at the time and he had a rehearsal at the house a few times and so we had this drum set that he got from i don't know where it was this red sparkle slingerling kit and um they had a rehearsal at the house and uh my brother happened to like reptiles so he like always had snakes and the snakes were always getting out of the cage so my dad's in the middle of a <laughs> rehearsal and the drummer looks up to see this big black and white snake like coming toward him in the living room <laughs> floor and the guy just literally flew out of the house 
and he's like fuck you i'm never coming back there again <laughs> and uh so anyway the the kit after whatever many years ended up in the basement and then uh one day out of boredom i was like oh there's the drum set so i pulled it out and this is before my accident and uh so i i didn't know how to play the drums at all i didn't even know how to keep you know one hand playing time on the hi-hat and the other hand playing the snare drum and like i just didn't get it at all i wasn't very bright with putting it all together so uh anyway the kid down the street was taking drum lessons and i went down there and i saw him like hit the right hand is doing this and the left hand is doing that and he's kicking the bass drum and like he had speakers behind him and he was playing along to like a boston song or something and it was just like magic and from that moment i was like can you teach me how to do that and he's like yeah sure so he came to my house and like wrote down on paper you know and like here's the basic rock beat and like so i just played the basic rock beat and like didn't think i didn't have any aha moment like i want to do this for the rest of my life this is awesome it was just like loud and cool and like you know powerful so um and that's as far as it got and then you know before i like even learned another drum beat uh we had a chicken coop in the backyard and we turned it into a clubhouse one summer and uh you know we put rug on the walls and like built bunk beds and like we even dug a basement in one of the sides of the really <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and uh so like we camp at in that on the weekends and uh so my parents are divorced by then and my mom and her boyfriend eric uh who was living with us we went down to long beach island and my sister and her boyfriend and and for like two weeks we had a nice time down there and so i had this deep dark tan and like we came back and my, my brother and i were like let's sleep out in the fort and it was like nobody around so we got our friend tr baron who lived you know a couple blocks away and like so he came and uh you know we we're camping out and we just went to sleep and left a candle burning and the candle just caught the whole place and the whole place went up you know like a tinderbox because it was old and rotten and um so tr's father was a volunteer fireman and like my brother woke up and he had tar dripping in his hair and he thought he was on fire and he like ran out he thought he was the only one in there and he just kind of panicked and kept running because you know he was like oh shit mom's gonna kill me and he tripped over tr tr woke up and ran out and was just kind of not sure if anybody was in there and that's when i woke up and i started screaming and i'm like on fire shit so i'm having this dream that i'm back down at long beach island and i'm going toward the beach and the sand starts getting really really hot and it starts burning my feet and i'm like jumping up and down on the sand and the fence that you know to like stay off the dunes the fence like wrapped around me and trapped me and i couldn't get out and i'm like jumping up and down and that was my brain trying to wake me up um so next thing i know i hear somebody talking to me and he just said put your hands over your eyes and cover your mouth don't breathe and like dragged me out rolled me on the grass and i'm thinking wow this is a crazy dream you know it's like this i just assumed i'm dreaming i'm still dreaming and then uh so he went up to the house which was you know right there on the property and started banging on the door and my mom and eric they called the fire department and so meanwhile he's like stay there so i'm like sitting trying to figure out what's happening i'm sitting in a field and i think i'm at the beach because i just had this dream and i'm like how why why am i at the beach and i thought well maybe they like kind of kidnapped me and like while i was sleeping they put me in a car and like somehow we got down to the beach and i'm like trying to piece it together and i'm looking and i'm like how is a tree growing in the beach on the sand i'm like trees don't grow on the sand that's so weird well it's a dream and i'm like just trying to put all together and i'm like started to like feel my arms because i didn't feel right and i felt like i was in shock but i was starting to feel pain and i took when i touched my arms i felt like you know it like reality kicked in a little bit and i felt this crusty sensation of burnt charred Oof. and that's when i was like oh no and my heart sank and i'm like oh shit 
this is like something happened and like all I could think of was like I want my mom you know I just want to be home and like as soon as I started thinking that there's my mom and I was like oh I'm like am I okay and she was like yeah you're fine it was dark and had this deep dark tan and they thought I didn't get hurt bad at all and they were more worried about my brother because my brother was still like hiding in the bushes and he like ran up this mountain and was like watching it from from up there like thinking he's going to be in trouble when he gets back he had no idea that i got hurt and no one else got burned other than you tr got a little bit of burns from help from coming in and helping me and pulling me out but you know he was just released like that day they just treated him so i was the only one that like got the brunt of it so i spent like uh a little over six months in a burn unit in Westchester, Valhalla, Westchester burn unit. Is that um, Was that up here? Did yeah. that happen up here? It happened in Mawa, New Jersey. And they took me to Good Samaritan and Suffering. And I remember seeing lights going by on the gurney. And I was like in and out of consciousness. And they said, I don't remember this. They're like, we don't have a burn unit. You got to take them. The only burn unit around here is in Valhalla. Uh, Westchester Medical Center so back in the ambulance and they took me over there and um, I still like I'm in and out and I'm not sure if this is real or if I'm dreaming and it it was just like kind of darkness and like hearing voices but I couldn't see Um, and I just had these weird thoughts of like like I, I was smoking cigarettes back then. I was like a tough little kid. <laughs> and I spent the whole day like scrounging for nickels and pennies to get a pack of cigarettes for that night so we could puff our cigarettes in the clubhouse. And uh, so like as soon as I TR pulled me out, I wanted to go back in to get my cigarettes. It was like my first thought. He's like, what are you doing? He's like, no. He's like, <laughs> and then like I heard a, one of the people in the ambulance say we have to cut his pants off and I, just thought like these are my favorite pants you can't cut them and I like jumped up and I was like no no don't cut my pants and then like we got to the hospital and there was some Asian woman can tell from the way she was talking she's like relax relax just calm down and she was trying to kill me she was like sticking something down my throat trying to choke me trying to get a tracheotomy down my throat but I'm fighting her the whole way and like and then they obviously got some meds into me and I like just you know calmed down or whatever, passed out, I don't know what. But that was like my first thoughts of like, you know, what happened. And then it was just kind of like I was just in this like suspended animation of not knowing where I was. My eyes still weren't open, like I couldn't see. And they thought, you know, is he blind? Are his lungs charred? Like they didn't know like to the extent of if I was going to be able to see or not. And uh, it turns out my eyes were fine. My lungs were fine. So they were very relieved at that. But basically they told my parents, uh, like he's been burned, you know, 60 something percent of his body from like my navel up. And um, your legs didn't get it at all. No, they didn't get it at all. Cause I was in a sleeping bag and I was wearing jeans, which are pretty mm. fire retard. Thank God. So, um, yeah, so they had to take skin from my legs and do grafts and put them, cover me back up top, and it took a long time and very painful process. And, you know, like they have to prep the area. So it's like, and they, they could only do so much and give me so much medication because you, you don't want to, like, overstress somebody and kill them by trying to help them. So they would, uh, you know, they'd have me, I was on drugs all the time you know enough to keep me out of pain but you know still like there's so much pain involved that like there's no way to not be in pain so it was like this torture day in day out of them coming in and like sloughing scrape it off my right? skin getting the dead shit off i've heard that uh you know travis barker he was in that plane crash right was on fire yep, yep. And he explained on Joe Rogan that they literally, like, they scrape it off you. Yeah, Can't. and they have this stuff called silvadine, which is like this antibiotic microbacterial something that they put on it. It's like this white kind of paste. 
and uh, and then they bandage you on top of that. And then the next day, it's like it soaks up all the yucky whatever, and they got to scrape it off and start over again. So it was like my back was just like, you know, and the guy's like, do you want it fast and hard or do you want me to go slow? I'm like, just get it over with. So he'd be like, and I'm like, yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. And uh, so it was like, you know, it was like being in a torture camp and I have to go to the tub and like, Richard Pryor, you know, he got burned and he was, he has this whole bit about talking about going, we're going to wash you. We're going to wash you. We're going to take you to the tub. And he's like, all right, great. Fucking wash me. All right. That's cool. (laughs) And they talked about, he goes to the tub and like, they didn't tell him like what they were going to do. And he was just like, stop, don't do anymore. You know, it's like. So they're like, they're like, you know, talking up the tub and it's like a jacuzzi and it's got jets and everything. And like, so I'm like, all right, this sounds good. And like, I get in there and I realize it's like, you know, doused with all these uh, anti whatever chemicals for infection and like it stings when they put you in the water and now they got to scrape you. And it was just so at 12 years old, I, you know, had to learn how to endure all this pain and uh it was crazy, man. It was just like, you know, and then it's like, they got to keep you moving and you got to like, you got to like physically stay active. And it's just like your body just wants to, doesn't matter how old you are. If you don't move, your body starts going into atrophy immediately. And like, you know, I could almost like not straighten my legs out. Cause I was just kind of crawling up in the bed and like, they had me in this like recliner chair in the room and like, I didn't want to go in the bed because the chair was like kind of comfy and the bed was just like this, you know, it was a bed and I didn't want to be like something about the bed. <laughs> it's like yeah. fear of the bed. And they had like these tents going over my legs so the blankets wouldn't hit me. And they had like these metal tents with the blankets over that with like lights underneath it to like dry out and keep me warm and dry out the... uh the grafts on my legs. I mean, they had like, you know, four inches, five inches wide by like 10 inches long, like whole big parts of my legs that were like, just had no skin because they took that skin to cover me up top. So now it's like, okay, we got to walk. So it's like, as soon as you stand up, all the blood goes to that area. And it's like far more excruciating pain than the burn you know, because I have all my feeling down there and like all my nerves are intact. So as soon as I stood up, it was just like, ah, oh, you know. What do they do to cover up what they took? What they do is they take medicated cloth and they put it right over it. Huh. Right over where there's no skin. And um, so it's your muscles and nerves and shit like b- behind that cloth. Yeah. Yeah. Like they <laughs> don't they don't go um, it's called a full thickness graft where they take nerves and hair follicle. They weren't doing full thickness grafts. Um, but you know, you're like basically taking all the layers of the skin off and exposing all those nerves. So all the nerves are just sitting there. That's crazy. Yeah. That is, that is crazy. Man. It was crazy. And, uh, so then that cloth, that's why they had the lamps. The cloth would, you know, the lamps would dry the cloth and then the cloth would get really thick and the blood would saturate into it and it'd be like a huge, massive scab and you could slowly start peeling it back and there'd be like bright red skin under there, you know. <laughs> so like this is what was happening like day in and day out for six, six months. months. Yeah. <laughs> and then they uh, eventually taught my mom how to do my dressings because the uh you know every hospital has like a uh a psychology nurse um and she was like i think your son needs to go home he's like not he's not doing too well like i started just like get me the f out of here like i can't take this anymore and they realized you know and they had the talk that if he goes home and you take care of his that'll be the most healing thing for him and he'll heal faster being home and you know and as soon as I went home it was just like you know you smell those smells of like coffee brewing and like you know whatever my mom was cooking and the smells of the house and that was like instantaneously healing me and so while I was in the hospital my father 
uh, was trying to cheer me up. And he's like, well, what do you want for Christmas or your birthday or whatever it was? And I said, I want a drum set. And I had gone to the Orange County Fair and there was this guy that had this chrome drum set. I think Slingerland made it. And he had this massive double bass kit and the lights were hitting the chrome and it was all just like reflecting the color. And like, so my mom was like, you know, think healing thoughts. And I was like, well, what's a healing thought? She was like, well, it makes you feel good. So I was like, well, the drum set. I started thinking about like, you know, animals and like puppy dogs and like all these nice thoughts about healing stuff. So uh, my dad, to go back, my dad was in the hospital room one night and he's like, okay, we'll get you a drum set. And when you, you know, we'll set it up here. And when you get out, you can play it. And like, and I was like, awesome. And then like, I didn't know this till much later, but the nurse was in there changing my fluids or whatever. And she's like, Mr. Levere, can I talk with you? And she's like, I'm on his way out. She's like, I know you're trying to make your son feel better, but I don't think it's a good idea to get his hopes up that way like that's that's not fair to him something like that and my father was just taken aback and he was like you don't know my son and I just walked away and like so the day came that I got you know my dad came through with a new drum set and we went to the store up in Warwick New York and there was a music store up there I'm not even sure what the name of it was but I got this brand new black beautiful drum set it wasn't the Slingerland kit but I didn't care but so we get it home and I'm playing and my dad is just like bawling, he's crying and like, you know, it was a bittersweet moment, you know, and that was, uh, we we're trying to figure out like, how am I going to hold the drumstick? And so like we tried carving it down for the left hand, like the right hand I got, you know, they didn't take a lot of these digits off, but the left hand they had to take more off. This hand was burned worse. So, uh, and the doctor, Dr. Salisbury, was the guy who uh, did most of the work on me, uh, said, I couldn't get myself to take your son's fingers off. And he's like, oh, I'm just going to keep grafting and grafting and grafting till it takes. And uh, so that's awesome because he's like, I should have taken your kid's hands off. Your your hands were burned that badly? That Oh, yeah, they were burned really bad. That's crazy. But they just kept grafting and grafting. and Until they could get at least something. Yeah. To- so uh, thanks to him, I still have, you know, digits to actually hold sticks, you know, so. And you, and you said earlier before we were recording that your thumb was originally like stuck on, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's stuck on at this point in your life, right? Yeah, I have no thumb. It's, it's buried in the palm of my hand and, you know, even like much further in than I've, if I, that you can see there. Mm-hmm. But um, so basically what we did is put the stick across this part of my hand and then just duct tape it and you know put some like cloth under it so it wouldn't but my skin was like tissue paper so like as soon as I started playing it would bleed and uh but that was my method for a while you know and it was just kind of it was just like hobby stuff I didn't really think like I'm gonna be a drummer you know it just felt good to play the drums again and a lot of what I did you know if I didn't have somebody around to help me with the taping of this hand was I would just, you know, go off the hi-hat and play the snare. And like, I was just messing around with it. And the, that red sparkle Slingerland kit was still there uh, before I got my brand new black kit. And um, so I'd been messing around with the red sparkle kit until the day came when my dad got the brand new shiny kit. But um, so I got the kit and we're like trying to figure out how to, you know, and I tried whittling down the drumstick to like actually stick it in this little digit and it just messed up the integrity of the stick. So I just, I, you know, was back in school and like, and I was doing like my kind of my one hand thing. Oh no, I found like a, a mallet, like a skinny little plastic that it's made for like glockenspiel where there's like a little ball on the end and it's got this thin, you know, stick, plastic stick. And I could get that in here. And uh, so, like, I would go to the music room at school, and uh, and I would just start playing. And I noticed, like, I was getting attention, and like, and cute girls were coming up, going, "Oh, you play there the you drums!" Go. <laughs> so <that laughs> it always like, comes down to exactly. Girls. <laughs> so uh, 
so yeah, I, uh, I was just messing around with it more and more, but still it wasn't anything that I was thinking about as a career. And then uh, I found this glove. It was like this martial arts padded glove on one side. And I was like, I just started driving and I was like still smoking, I think. So I was getting a pack of cigarettes and I looked down and I see this glove in the parking lot. I'm like, oh, cool. So I like threw it in the back seat. And then I like just kind of, it just clicked. And I was like, oh yeah, you know, tape the stick to the glove. And then you could just stick your hand in the glove and you can play like real quick. So that was my method and it worked. And I was started playing in this band with these guys that were friends. And, um, you know, we did the battle of the bands and, um, and I actually sang. I sang Whiplash by Metallica. Because nice. we tried a couple singers, like a couple kids from school, and none of them could sing. And like, and um, so I ended up singing. And, um, you know, I was like getting more confident about being a drummer. And then the time came for graduation, and everybody's talking about, I'm going to do this. I'm going to go to college. I'm going to, and I was starting to think, like, well, what am I going to do? I was like, and like, I had no interests with really anything except for the drums. So like, I, w I remember I went on this hike with my dog and like, I started thinking about it and like made up my mind during that hike. And by the time the hike was over, I'm like, I'm gonna be a drummer. That's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna dedicate my life to drumming. <laughs> so like, I got a teacher and um, you know, he, this guy, Sal LaRock, a really amazing guy that was friends with my dad and my dad actually recommended him. So Sal came on the scene and like, he uh, taught me how to read, taught me about drum rudiments and uh, had me in all these books and, um, you know, was helping me, you know, get preparing me for to go to college and I was thinking about I was started looking at schools and I was thinking about going to Miami University of Miami down in Florida and because it's warm and nice and all that and uh, I ended up going to uh, at Sal's recommendation because Sal went to William Patterson he's like William Patterson has a great program I think you should go there so um, I did a demo tape with my dad my dad played organ he had this Hammond B3 and nice. so nice, nice. we did like a ballad, a Latin tune, and something medium or up jazz tune. And um, we did these three standards and we made our tape. We just recorded from a mic in the room or something. And I sent this tape in and they said, you're accepted. And I was like, what? <laughs> so like, I'm going to college, oh my God, you know. Did they know that you you had, you know, had been burned. Oh, yeah, yeah, that was all part of like, you know, tell us about you, you know, type of thing. And, um, you know, prior to that, I was in this band, like I said, and, and I was just, I was really into heavy metal and Metallica and Anthrax and Venom and Slayer and just like, I was just so sure I was going to be a rock and roll star. And like, you know, this band was awesome. We sucked, but like, we thought we we're going to be the next Metallica. And uh, so anyway, like it just got out of hand and uh, these guys were drinking a lot, smoking a lot of weed. And it was just like, I started practicing and taking lessons and getting better. And I started noticing like, I'm starting to surpass these guys and these guys, I'm looking, I'm like, these guys don't really care. And the teacher, I was with this other guy, Keith Crane at the time. And we did this recording. We got a tape machine from a music store and we set it up in my garage and we had some mics and we got this recording and the lead singer was this like older guy that was like claimed he was in a band and knew how things work and he just didn't know his ass from his elbow and he's like we record the bass and the guitar first and then we'll do the drums last and i'm like okay and i know nothing about recording and these guys have a few drinks in them and their time sucks and it's like wavy gravy and now it's time for me to record. And I'm like, oh, I suck. I can't play along with people. What's the matter with me? And like, so like my teacher came that week and I'm like, Keith, I'm like, maybe you could help me with my time. Like I have bad time. And so he's like, all right. And I did have bad time. But I remember he turned on the metronome and I was like, does the metronome need batteries? It sounds like it's moving. And he's like, <laughs> he's like, no, you're moving. <laughs> he's like, your time is awful. 
but um, he listened to the recording and he was like, let me tell you, let me ask you something. Um, when you build a house, do you build a roof first and put the shingles on and then build your way down to the foundation? And I said, no, you, you build a foundation and you build up. And he's like, exactly. And he's like, the drums are the foundation. That's what everything should sit upon. And he's like, your friend here did it completely backwards and you're not to blame. And I was just like, oh, and I like <laughs> felt like, you know, oh, thank God. I thought I was horrible, <laughs> you know, and I still sucked and needed a lot of work. But like, you know, it was like opened my eyes further that these guys didn't know what they were doing. And like then there was a big fight. I don't know what happened. And like it, the band fell apart and I was like if I'm going to do this, like, I got to go to school. I can't mess around. Like, I don't want to be some, just some slack drummer. Like I got to like study. And that, that this band really was, you know, pivotal for me, like wanting to go to school and study and take it seriously. Cause like all during school, like I was, you know, I was a slacker. Like I did the bare minimum and that carried its way over to practicing. You know, it was like, schoolwork you know and it was like i had this like adverse reaction to anything that's like sit down and study you know and then like in that moment and because of that band i like did a complete 360 and i was like okay i gotta change my whole thing here and like i gotta be the guy that's gotta like show up for me and like want to do it for me and uh so i went to school and i was shocked that i got into school it was a William Patterson has a really good jazz program. Like they were like first or second in the whole country. So like I got in and they like put me in an advanced uh, performance group with these guys that were like really good jazz musicians. And I remember them counting off the song and they're tapping two and four, but I don't know that. So I'm thinking one, two, three, four. and they're going one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, I run two, three, four, tang, tang, tang. And they're like, whoa, 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 stop. Uh, let's try that again. You know, and then same thing. And I'm, I'm hearing one, two, three. And then the one guy is like, I think he's hearing that as a downbeat. And I'm like, and he's like, no, this is one, two, three, four. And they had to explain it to me. I'm like, oh, okay. And like, they were just like rolling their eyes and then they went to the director and they're like can we get another drummer in here like and i was like can i get out of that class because like i'm like obviously not ready for these guys and i'm i could feel the tension of you know holding them back but when i was there i you know realized that i was way behind the eight ball i started drums really late i wasn't that talented i you know but i realized like my superpower is going to be just practicing like a maniac and like just sheer perseverance and like and that's what I did I just like went home and I practiced 8 to 12 hours a day and my whole life was revolving around drums and learning how to read music how to study all these different styles and uh I was reading every single issue of Modern Drummer and all the back issues and just immersing myself as much as I could and, um, you know, I really like just learned a lot in a short amount of time. I think a lot of my learning curve just like kicked in in like a two year period where I went from like kind of avid novice, not so great to like to the point where I'm like almost an advanced drummer with, wow. you know, advanced concepts. And like um, the teacher that I was with, Sal, was like turning me on to all these different styles of music. And I met this other guitarist who lived down the street and he started turning me on to fusion. I'm like, what's fusion? That sounds cool. He's like, you never heard of fusion? He's like, Mahavishnu? I'm like, no. Oh man, Mahavishnu, one of my favorites of all time. Yeah. And uh, he's like, you ever heard of Billy Cobham? I'm like, no, I don't heard of any of these guys, you know? And he's like, uh, Return of Forever? And he like started naming all these bands, Weather Report? I'm like, no, turn me on. So he started turning me on and he's like, go to the music store and tell them you want Weather Report and Yellow Jackets and like all these, you know, fusion bands. So I'm like getting my mind blown with like drummers like Steve Gadd and Omar Akeem and Billy Cobham and Vinnie Caliuta 
and on and on and you know I was just like whoa and that was like just blew me out of the water of how much more I needed to study so like and I got turned on to Buddy Rich and I was just like when I heard Buddy Rich I was like all right I'm just gonna imagine I'm Buddy Rich and there's nothing wrong with my hands and I'm gonna try to cop what he's doing and like so I went after these drummers that were like you know really advanced technical players and I'm like if I can like go after these guys and like just get a little bit of what they have that'll really help me you know technologically and so that's what I did I kind of like shot for the moon you know and if I hit the top of the mountain that was okay you know so that was my whole method of operation and uh so yeah and then it's like the more you know the more you realize you don't know and you're like well I got to get really serious now and it's like <laughs> you know so that's kind of how it went and um I went to William Patterson for three years and I ended up getting what I thought was tendonitis, but it was scar tissue on the tendon that uh, was just kind of rubbing and causing inflammation. And I was ready to get surgery and I had to drop out of school and like, cause I was in two ensembles at school. I was playing in a rock band outside of school and we had two rehearsals a week. And then I was writing with a pencil and you know, it was just nonstop with using my hand and uh, I wasn't eating right I knew nothing about diet or nutrition and I would like I'd have a bagel with cream cheese on the way to school and like that would be like seven or eight o'clock and then by 11 or 12 I'm like how come I have no energy and I just want to fall asleep what's the matter with me like I was clueless <laughs> you know and I just pound more coffee and like and um so yeah, I like messed my wrist up and then I had to like stop playing for a year and that was devastating. And then, but it got me, you know, I was like, all right, it got me thinking about nutrition. And like, I went to the health food store and this woman picks up this massive book that says nutrition. And then, um, so she's like, I'm telling her what's the matter with me. And she's like, oh, tendonitis. So, so I think, and she's like, you need to strengthen this. So take this vitamin and this vitamin and that vitamin. But I still wasn't eating, I was eating better, but I still didn't get nutrition until really like seven years ago. Um, and um, I've been a full-time vegan for like five years now. And uh, I'm like completely um, plant-based, whole food, plant-based diet, no oil or anything like that, just because um, I want the like optimal amount of energy for my body and like, from what I've been researching is that like that's the best diet you can eat so yeah people don't realize like uh their first thing is like oh I'm tired let me go to the doctors and see if they could prescribe me something that's just band-aiding like yeah exercise breathing eating right is really all that you need it is it really is and um you know the U.S. and the world for that matter but mostly the U.S. is we're so dependent on doctors and like I was shocked to find out that doctors don't, they're not schooled in nutrition. They don't know anything about nutrition. It's true. It's very true. And there's some of the most unhealthiest people on the planet. And um, here I am thinking, oh, doctors know about nutrition too. And they don't. So like, thank God for YouTube. Like I, I'm a researcher. So like I just started researching, researching and like hearing all the stuff about diet and how pretty much most if not all diseases from cancer to diabetes to it's all from diet it's all diet related and uh, genetics have a very small part to do with you getting sick and getting cancer it's basically you're feeding cancers and tumors uh, by having too much protein and uh, animal protein is like loaded with you know lots of stuff that you just don't want in your body yeah, especially anything store-bought you don't know what they inject in it or yeah it's all injected and all meat has steroids in it because they they have to it's an industrial thing now where it used to take five years for a cow to mature before they slaughter it and then they got it down now to under two years by giving it steroids and loading it with all this stuff to get the fat to marbleize so when you cut it you see the pieces of fat in there and um so i took a course at cornell during the pandemic and um it was a course on whole food plant-based nutrition and the first part of the module they teach you about industrial farming and uh 
I literally cried. I was like, oh man, we're screwed. <laughs> and it's just like the amount of water that goes into, you know, the, the waste and the, you know, how it's just like, I think one pound of beef needs 2000 gallons of water, you know, by the time it's all said and done. And it's just, so we're sucking the water dry for, and also we can eat for this particular style of eating. And like 70% of all the crops are grown for animals. And um, so it's just crazy. I mean, I can go on and on about it, but I mean, um, moving forward, like kids today are gonna have to, and like grandkids, great grandkids, whatever, like they're gonna, they're gonna have forced to be vegan because it's like the, the practice of what we're doing now is like so wasteful that we're not going to be able to sustain humans moving forward. Um, you know, by 2050, we'll be like close to 9 billion people on the planet. And yeah, 2050 seems to be like the, uh, the day of reckoning for yeah. so many things. They're talking about the, uh, the global warming that, um, that was another thing we learned about is that we're, we're dumping around 500 gigatons of carbons into the atmosphere every year. And they said it's going to cap out in 2050 where we can only put about, you know, 5,000 more into the atmosphere. And that's going to take about so many years by 2050. And that's why they're coming up with 2050 as a, the point where the globe is going to get, you know, so hot that it's going to raise in temperature and it's not going to go back down. And once it gets hotter, it's a snowball effect where it just, you know, and crops aren't going to grow after a certain period, um, certain crops, you know, and we'll have to come up with ways to have crops that are, you know, tougher that can sustain heat and you know but migrating patterns of birds in the gulf stream and all that's going to be affected so we're basically uh the only species that is like on our way to creating the sixth mass extinction of the planet you yeah know? so speaking of animals though peanut is uh <laughs> out like a light <laughs> out like a light so i hope we can learn you know from our mistakes before it gets too late and uh but anyway, that's my take on how I got into nutrition and and it's really been like trial by error and you know, so like when anything happens to me, it's like it's like why did this happen and how can I learn from it and move on and get stronger from it and um so, you know, and I guess that's instilled in me from my accident and like you know, we're going to get through this and like we're going to get better and like we have to so it's like but um yeah so that's my story <laughs> <laughs> so nine to five wise like what do you do to my day gig is writing music for television i have uh, a um i have a kind of a production company uh with me and a couple other people where we write music for television which is a lot of these um, shows that are, um, what do you call it, shows, um, reality shows that uh, they just, without music underneath, they're kind of boring and dumb. So the music is really crucial in creating an energy behind what's happening with the emotion of the program. And um, so that's what we do. And it, it's cool because they don't, they, they kind of, we're writing for the editor um, there's there's nobody at the TV station saying we need this type of composition. They're saying we need, you know, like 160 BPM, something up tempo, rock, you know, in this in the vein of ACDC or with that type of rock or something. So like, we just make it up on the spot. My friend Rich Tizzoli is the guy that got me into this. He's got thousands of cues under his belt. And uh, so he had been, he has a production studio in his house and he had been just doing it all by himself, you know, with drum machines and all that. And then he met me, I uh, was, uh, I, a friend of a friend introduced me to him to help me with a Pro Tools issue. And so I started taking lessons from him about Pro Tools. And then he was like, oh man, you're a great drummer. And, you know, he was like, you want to do some drum, some cues with me, you know, it'd be fun to work with a real drummer. So like, so I was like, yeah, let's do it. And I started like really learning about engineering and Pro Tools and um, 
mixing and you know so like as i was getting better and better like he would come here more and more to track with me so uh that's how i got into that um through him and um yeah so that's that's great it's a, so that's kind of my day gig uh i have a few students and um i have my gigs um you know i probably play out at least once or twice a week and um some gigs pay better than others, but, uh, you know, since the pandemic, it's been a little rough. So, but I've diversified, you know, and I have some tenants and, you know, it all, it all works out. At yeah. That's end. what you got to do these days is diversify the income. You can't yeah. rely on one thing anymore. No. And I've seen a lot of people that were like, you know, doing great back in the day. And then all of a sudden, like the, everything switched and changed and they, they didn't have any skills to go with the, you know, the way things were changing. Yeah. You got to keep up or else the world's going to leave you behind. You know, it happens fast, you know, and it's like the faster it happens, the faster it changes. And like, it's just crazy. Like even how <clears throat> we went from vinyl to like cassettes to CDs to digital downloads like overnight you yeah. know yeah it's true although i am in the vinyl world <laughs> it, it definitely still selling but definitely it's not yeah. a, it's not a mainstream thing anymore you no know? it's it's definitely uh it has you know a retro thing that uh you know there's audio files that they they just want vinyl and thank god for that and like you know, like my next record, I'm probably not going to print CDs, but I might do a small batch of vinyl. Yeah. You know. Peanut, I didn't know you could get any longer when you stretch. You, like, <laughs> you get like two times long. Yep. <laughs> Where's the other dog? He's probably on the bed chilling. <laughs> I, I, li I like your place, man. I like all the natural light. Thanks, you know? man. Yeah, I just put this window in last year oh cool you just there was just a wall here or there was two windows there like the size of that guy oh, all like, right yeah and, i like it it's nice and when i first reconstructed this house, we gutted this entire house this was like inhabitable there was there was just disgusting like you'd walk in here and you'd be like oh it's like rat turds everywhere <laughs> and like it should have been demolished <laughs> so we gutted the entire house and resheet rocked and like uh my friend uh, was the construction guy who did all this, and it was his idea to vault the ceiling and blow that out, put a hole there, and, and then blow this. There was a wall here. We blew that out and just kind of opened it up. Yeah, it looks really nice. I, I, I love skylights. And then um, beyond that opening back there, that the, was just the outside that you know went outdoors, and there was no... Uh, so what we did is we built another addition so that's where my studio is in my bedroom and so we did an addition on the house and yeah and the uh in the other house that you did you build that for the tenant this um, one this is a garage oh it was a, a studio okay we built that was not there i built that with the same guy oh word and uh yeah so there's a tenant up there which also helps out and uh so uh yeah so you got your own little uh, commune over here because you said you owned a house right over here, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, you know, it's just good to be able to make noise back here and not have to worry about, you know, bothering people. And that was really the goal way back when uh, I was living in Fort Lee and I had this um, enclosure called a whisper room, which was... Oh, yeah, I know them. And uh, it was cool, but you could still hear... You know, and I had a tenant above me. I was in this two family and I would practice during the day and she was really cool. And I'd stop before nine o'clock and, you know, she was really cool about it. But I always was like, I need a house. I need a basement, you know, just make noise. And so my brother was renting on the street and I started looking for houses. And uh, his tenant, uh, his landlord across the street was uh, selling his house and so I looked at it and I was like, all right. So I bought that house down the street and then uh, sold that and bought this house and moved down here. Nice. What year, what year was that? It was like 2007 that I bought this. Oh, so that was a good time for the housing market, right? Yeah. Yeah, it was, uh, it was on its way up, but I got a, you know, 
I spent too much money for this, but I it's two acres, so I really bought the property and I the the view back here is just like you know. You said that's that's the Hackensack mm-hmm. out there, right? That's yeah. crazy that the Hack I I never knew that the Hackensack came this far up. Mm-hmm. And it gets so skinny because where I am, the thing is it's almost like a mile wide. Wow. And uh it's down near like Giant Stadium, stuff like that. Yep, yep. And then uh it empties out into I don't know, some bay, probably near Bayonne or probably into the Hudson. I'm not really yeah, sure I'm where not it goes. Sure either. I should know because I live next to it, but <laughs> <laughs> but it's nice. I got wildlife back here. There's lots of tons of different types of birds yeah, flying the, in and out. The marsh um, wetlands back there, yeah, definitely uh, brings in a lot of yeah. avian variety. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, bald eagles that come in, yes, and uh, red-tailed hawks and. Yeah, I remember working up here. That was the one thing I used to see often was hawks and bald eagles. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the bald eagle is is America's bird. Yep. But you don't really see it that often. Yeah. And I remember one flew, I was driving my truck, and one flew over the truck and landed on this guardrail. And I was like, wow, I've never seen one up close yeah, before. Yeah, they're big. Huge. They're huge. Yeah, I had like 17 of them right across the river, just all hanging out in the tree one year. Oh, wow. And it was in the Rockland Journal News. They're like, behind ShopRite are all these eagles flying over. And I'm like, <laughs> shh, don't tell them they're in my backyard. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you'll have all these uh, bird watchers showing yeah. up. But yeah, it's nice back here. It's it's kind of a forgotten street, you know. It's like, yeah, when I was coming up, it said private property. I'm like, my well, first you come up and you're near the railroad tracks. Mm-hmm. And there's, I guess there's, a, I don't know, is that like a bot, like an auto body place or something where all those cars are? Yeah, that's the, like a prep place for a car dealership. Yeah, so I was like, am I in the right place? And then it's like, all right, go left. And mm-hmm. then I see private property. I'm like, wow, this is really like such yeah. an odd setup back here. It really is it's strange. <laughs> But it's cool that uh, this exists, and then literally right down the road is one of the coolest towns around, which yeah. is Nyack. Yep. Yeah, Nyack's a great town. Yeah, I loved, I loved playing down there when we were playing with Joanne and stuff. Mm-hmm. So many cool people and cool bars, and just everybody's out and they're having a grand yeah, old it's time. It's a cool town. You know. Yeah. So, um, what else is going on? Um, you saw the half pipe in the back there. Yeah, you skate, right? I skate, and actually, um, my friend Scotty Moore did this cool documentary on me. Uh, and so he was buying a new piece of equipment, and he called this guy Michael Cohen. And uh, he was talking with Michael, and Michael's like, what have you done? And he's like, oh, I'll send you some documentaries I've done. So he sent him the one about me. And he was like, oh, my God, that guy's incredible. And, you know, uh, Michael was in the middle of writing a film called Humanity Stoked. And it's about people that have, you know, had tragedies and triumphed over tragedy. And uh, people that, um, you know, have had, um, you know, hard stuff happen. And But the whole... The whole uh, um, thing that follows through is that they're all skateboarders and they're all surfers and like so like uh, Tony Hawk is in the film and um, um, I can't think of it the scientist uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson is in it and uh, I didn't know he skateboarded and like um, surfers and um, you know LGBTQ people and skaters that were gay and came out of the closet and like but it's it's all about humanity and our diversity and how that's what helps us thrive and it's camaraderie and coming together and helping one another that is really what the film is about so he was talking to michael about the film and he's like oh too bad your friend doesn't skateboard and scotty was like laughing he's like he has a half pipe in his backyard so he's like, oh, my God, do you think he'd be into being in the film? So, like, he called me, and I was like, are you kidding me? Of course. Like, these, there's, like, so many people in the film, uh, all these skaters that, um, you know, I'm not, like, I don't know a lot about the history. Um, I got into skating, actually, at 42. Wow, really? 
I went to the Vans to get a pair of sneakers, and I'm like, oh, they got skateboards. And I'm like, I think I'll get a skateboard, you know, and just cruise around in the parking lot. And the guy's like, what do you want? I'm like, I don't know. So I picked, like, this cruiser board and, like, knew nothing about boards or anything, and I just started skating around, and I started watching videos to try to get information. And then it's like you go down that rabbit hole, and then it's like next thing you know, I'm just like all I'm thinking about is skating and, you know, uh, I just really loved what it did for me, you know, psychologically and physically and spiritually and the, the, you know, the kind of the same feeling of like drumming and skating had this like connection of like, you really have to commit to what you're doing in the moment. And like, you have to put all your attention into, you know, what's happening right then and there. So I feel like the skating strengthened my drumming and the drumming strengthened my skating. And so, um, yeah, and then a friend of mine was like, hey, I got this half pipe and uh, they're going to throw it out. Do you want it? And I was like, bring it over. <laughs> so. And you could, you, you, you could pump on the, on the half pipe? You could, do, uh, you could do stuff on it? Yeah, I got all the way up to the top. I've dropped in on it a couple times. Wow. It's really scary. Yeah, it is scary to <laughs> drop in. <laughs> And it's two feet of vert, so it's literally straight up and down before you even get any vert. Do you have two back there? I saw there was like yeah, a, mini a mini one back and there. A, yeah, yeah, I'd take the mini. Um, even even when I did skateboard, I would mm -hmm. just take the mini. <laughs> just yeah, it's the heights. Yeah, I mean the mini's dangerous too. That thing is like when you fall, it's just you're still, you know, it's faster. So you're like kaboom, you yeah. know. And like when you're on the big one, you know, you're like you have this slow moment up top where you're like, oh, I'm going to fall. I should get to my knees. And it's all about getting to your knees. You yeah. Know? So, but it's cool. And I'm, you know, the warmer weather coming, it's going to be fun to, so I'm going to be in this film, humanity stoked and, uh, he's done with it. And he's been, you know, doing all these film festivals and he, he's won like 10 awards already. Wow. And that's great. So I'm hoping he's going to sell it. And, uh, get distribution with netflix or whoever i don't know that would be great yeah that'd be weird if you ended up doing the music for it <laughs> i did some of the music yeah. for it actually yeah there you go uh, it comes for, full circle for the trailer he you know actually called me he's like i need just 10 seconds up front on the trailer can you give me some chords you know so i just gave him some chords and nice very simple but like i have a piece of music in the film <laughs> yeah that's cool man it's cool to see you know, how something as devastating as what happened to you just didn't stop you. Just kept on going. Yeah, it's, you know, sink or swim. And, um, you know, what helped me heal is to think about getting back into the world and being normal again and, you know, just doing what you love doing. And it's, that's important in life is to just do what you love and, uh, you know, you have to, you have to do what you love because uh, that's what gets you out of bed in the morning. Yeah. And, uh, you know, life's too short. And um, I mean, yeah, we all need to make money and stuff, but I've, I've somehow managed to, you know, carve a life out of, you know, creativity and financial stability and to make things happen. And, um, you know, my mom is, and my dad have been great. They've just been like, do what you love and the money will come and you know just do what you love and they're still around both yeah. your parents mm -hmm. yeah. is your dad still doing the piano thing yeah he tunes once in a while and he does gigs probably more now than he did up here uh they're down in florida so they do the old folks homes down there a whole yeah. bunch <laughs> and uh so yeah he's 83 and he still walks three miles a day and he practices chopin he's like working on classical pieces and that's awesome and he uh does tunings once in a while but he's basically retired and just you know living the good life down there <laughs> and uh yeah my mom is uh up in wurtsboro about an hour north from here she's living with my sister and my brother oh that's cool and uh so yeah she's close by and uh yeah so they've been very supportive with what i've been doing you got the instagram thing going because that's how i originally knew mm. about you and that's growing I've, yeah i've been I, uh perusing your followers and it seems uh -huh. to be growing every day which is great man yeah i've been working on that um 
I think like less than two years ago, I was around 3,000 followers. And uh, I just kind of saw that, that everything is going towards social media and like that's just kind of how things are done today. And like I knew nothing about it. So I uh, took on this company called Cyber PR. I know Cyber, yeah. Um, who runs that? Ariel? Ariel, yeah. Yeah. She's been great, and uh, so she's helping me craft everything and um, working on my website to make sure everything's dialed in, my email list, um, you know, the content of how to go about getting content out there and, you know, what to say and how to keep people interested. And, and yeah, it's like I feel bad for kids today because, you know, I sound yeah, like an old no man chance. kids today, but it's true, man, like, psychologically they are just like they're glitched like they they can't hold anything for you know concentration for any period of time because everything is just like so fast and it's like tiktok it's like stupid things that oh, they're all less than a minute are you on tiktok also i have a tiktok account and uh i actually saw a thing on 60 minutes about how scary TikTok is because it's a, Jap a Chinese owned yeah. company. And yeah, it's a, uh, I mean, it, I, I believe it's literally like probably some Chinese spy device. That's what they're saying. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think, uh, I think when Trump was still in the White House, he, he was looking to ban it from the United States. Mm -hmm. And then I'm sure, I'm sure some Congress people had money in it. So that's why it didn't go away. But yeah. And this, this Chinese guy, this young kid that came up with the, um, artificial intelligence algorithm with TikTok and you're dealing with a communist country so it's like they're saying like you know no like they know everything about you know like you can't keep anything from the Chinese government like you have to be full disclosure with them because it's a communist country and like you know so like I think they ban uh, I think the US military bans uh, service members from being on TikTok or at least, uh, or at least using TikTok when mm. they're on bases because those algorithms could get a lot of more information than people think they they get. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's scary what we're moving into with AI, and yeah, it's like a double-edged sword because I'm not into like, but I have to because you have to now for promotion-wise, yeah. you have to do it. But I, I'm I've always been a a post and ghost person. Post what you got to do, and don't read the comments. Don't just just do it. Mm -hmm. You know you're you're gonna you're you're gonna get what what you want to happen happen. Yeah. You know? D but don't spend too much time on it because yeah. that's you can make or break you. you yeah, know? totally. And I I try to find that balance every day of like, you know, trying not to spend too much time and get too concerned about what's happening there. Don't read the comments, man. The more followers you get, don't read the comments. <laughs> Well, the comments are actually great. I've been, you know, 99% of people, like I've only got one or two stupid comments from people. You know, you got to take it all with a grain of salt. And yeah. Are you endorsed by Peisty? I'm endorsed. I have full endorsement with Peisty cymbals, Yamaha drums, Vader sticks, and Evans drum heads. Oh, awesome. So, Good yeah. companies. Yeah. Yamaha's record really well. When we had our studio, we had our... Uh, we had, I think, two stage customs, only Great because there are someone had them and I mm -hmm. bought both of them. They're a, you know a, a cheaper kit, but they sound amazing. Yeah, they definitely do. I had a stage custom kit and I was blown away about how great they sounded. Very crisp and clear and focused. Did you get uh, that endorsement through uh, doing the TV work or from doing your live work? Um. I was in Modern Drummer Magazine back in 95, and um, so that helped to, you know, give me a presence. Um, I'd been touring with uh, KJ Dennert for like 20-something years. Oh, nice. So I'm in a touring band, so that helped. And then uh, I'd go to the Modern Drummer Festival when they were having Montclair. And, you know, uh, since you're in the magazine, you're, they give you a backstage pass. So, like, I was down there at the food table, and there's this guy from Peisty, and I'm like, hey, what's up, man? And this guy, Wayne, was like, oh, here's my card, man. Let me talk if you need an endorsement. I was like, nice. All right. <laughs> he didn't have Called to him up. 
pull their arm or anything. Yeah, call right? them up and uh, they give you what's called a B endorsement. You know, where you, you pay cost, which is... That's high, good. Yeah, it's a really good deal. So, uh, yeah, that's how that happened. And then Yamaha, like, I tried getting in on Yamaha and uh, just nothing. Like, the, I got buried under a pile or whatever, probably. And then my friend uh, Antonio Sanchez is a famous drummer. He's played with Pat Metheny and uh, he did the music for Birdman, the film that won. Uh, I think it won a Grammy. Um, anyway, so like him and then my friend Keith Carlock, who plays at Steely Dan and he played with Sting for a while. Uh, they both contacted Yamaha and talked to this guy, Joe Testa, who was the AR guy at that time. And uh, he's like, why didn't you tell me you knew these guys? I'm like, I didn't know you just had the name drop. Yeah. So he's like, well, yeah, well, cool. We'll give you a B endorsement. So I was oh, like, that's right. cool. Yeah. Nice, man. Yeah. It's good to have those endorsements. Yeah, it's cool. Um, I don't really, uh, you know, I got two drum kits and that's, I don't really have any. I just got my kit that I gig out with that stays in bags. Yeah. And I got the kit in the studio that never leaves, you know. I'm the same way with, you know, like even this recording stuff. It's like, I, when I was thinking about the podcast, I was like, well, I already know what I'm going to use, but I'm so glad that I invested in it because I can't imagine taking stuff out of the studio right. and then resetting it up again, mm-hmm. you know. It's a pain in the ass. Yeah. <laughs> you get, then, it, then sometimes it never goes back in the studio because you're, a little lazy about it, you mm-hmm. know. Exactly. <laughs> so I don't know if you have any other questions. Uh, nah, man, I, we could wrap it up. I'd love to see the studio and uh, sure, see, see what you got. Yeah, man. Thanks for coming on, man. Oh, man, anytime, bro. Anytime. Thank you for having me. It's of an course, honor. Of course, man. Yeah, this. Thank you so much, James.